The church I see is a great church. It's great because of the way people love. The church I see is passionately in love with Jesus. Worship is exuberant, heartfelt and real. The church I see has a love for people that means people on the fringes feel included. People at their lowest get lifted. And people at their most desperate can know hope and another chance at life. The church I see is great because of the reputation, respect and relevance it has in the community. The church I see is a growing church. People are growing in their knowledge of God, in their commitment to God and growing in their influence in the world. The church I see is obsessed with the Great Commission. Hundreds of people become Christians as believers build relationships, pray and share their faith. The church I see exists for the unchurched and will move, alter or change anything if it means that more people get a chance to hear and understand the gospel message. The church I see is a faithful church where people have accepted the call to live sacrificial, unselfish lives of servanthood as Jesus did. The church I see is a generous church that is prepared to look, send and give outside of itself for the sake of the kingdom. The church I see is a family church where hundreds of children and young people are reached for Christ. The elderly feel accepted and valued and where the lonely know that they truly belong. The church I see is a creative church that values excellence and giftedness and encourages everyone to contribute to the vision. Church I see is a kingdom-oriented church where every week hundreds of God-inspired people invade their own world, intent on making a difference for God, empowered by the Holy Spirit and committed to the cause of Christ. The church I see helps people make sense of life. A church people turn to as a first resort rather than a last. A church that leads the way, sets the temperature, a can-do church that asks why not more often than it asks why. The church I see is a great church. The church I see is this church. you uh, with the bulletin that you were given on your way in. Uh, once a month we do this kind of bigger version of the bulletin and on the inside of the cover at the back is that piece of prose really called The Church I See and I want to encourage you to take it away with you today. It may be a long time since you've read that. Uh, we're going to be looking at this over the next three weeks and uh, talking about what is the church that we see, not just I but that we see. And I wonder if I was to ask if the youth could make your way out if you haven't gone. Sorry. <laughs> Go. If, um, if I was to ask the question, what's the church that people see, uh, I wonder what kind of answers that I might get, depending on who I ask the question to. So, for instance, if I ask children, you know, when you see church kids, what do you see? I wonder what some of their responses might be. After the christening of his baby brother in church, Jason sobbed all the way home in the back seat of the car. His father asked him three times what was wrong. Finally, the boy replied, that preacher said he wanted us brought up in a good Christian home and I want to stay with you guys. <laughs> a, su- a Sunday school teacher asked her children as they were on their way to church service, and why is it necessary, children, to be quiet in church? And one bright little girl replied, because the people are sleeping. Well, 
hopefully that won't be the case today. But if I was to ask adults, what do they see when they look at church? That would be an interesting question. A man and uh, wife asleep in bed, Sunday morning, alarm clock goes off. She nudges her husband and says, come on, darling, it's time to get up. It's time to get to church. He says, I'm not going. I want to stay in bed. And she says, come on, come on, you've got to go to church. He says, I'm not going. He says, you've got to go to church. He says, I'm not going. She says, why aren't you going? He says, the people down there are horrible. She says, all right, but come on, you've still got to go. He says, I'm not going. Well, why else are you not going? And she says, because the sermons are so dull and boring, I'm just not going. Finally, she says, look, you're the minister. You've got to go, okay? So get up and just, all right, you've got it. What might the government say? That's interesting with this whole big society agenda. I was chatting to our local MP this week about that. And I said to him, and of course, uh, David Cameron has said that he wants to remove all the barriers so that churches and faith-based organizations can work effectively as part of the big society. Isn't that right? And of course, he says, yes, it is. And so I said, well, that's great. I'll really look to see that happen over the next few months and years, and let's work together. And I'm going to talk a lot about the big society in a couple of weeks. You know, the church is potentially the single biggest partner in the big society in the UK. But you know, as Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, has said... It could, the whole big society could be an alibi for the government's cost-cutting agenda and for an abdication of its social responsibility. I hope it isn't that, but we shall wait and see. I'm going to just say it's fantastic we've got people like Tom going off to a situation where he has the ability to speak into the government uh, on behalf of children and young people. That's a fantastic opportunity, isn't it? And I know that Tom's got the freedom to work with other organisations and churches as part of that whole response, so that's very exciting. What might the media say? What's the church that the media... I don't know about you, but isn't it right that if you watch soaps, and I know most of you are far too spiritual and intelligent to watch soaps, okay. But I've talked to people who watch soaps, and they tell me, and they tell me that nearly every Christian who's in a soap opera or church is really poorly portrayed. And what I've noticed is this, that it starts off often really positively in soap. Have you noticed that? And so there is a famous soap that I don't watch, it's in the east end of somewhere, and um, there's a character in that, and, he, and when he came on the scene as a Christian minister, it looks so good, and of course now he's in prison because he's a psychopathic killer, you know, and that's the portrayal often of the church and of Christians. What might historians say if you're into history? Let me give you a quick history lesson of the 20th century. At the end of the 19th century, in the late 1800s, there was a positive feeling in this nation and in Europe about the next century. They believed it would be the century of the church going into the early 1900s. Then in 1915, there was a genocide in Armenia where half a million, uh, many of them were Christians, half a million Armenians were slaughtered under the Ottoman Empire. Then we had the First World War. Then we had um, Marx's theology, uh, if you like, or ideology rather, and, and Lenin and Stalin. And of course, the big communist ideal there was that religion is that thing that everyone turns to because they can't cope with their own poverty and their disconnection from their rights. And uh, Marx prophesied, if you like, that religion would vanish when the revolution kind of picked up steam. And his famous quote was that religion is the opium or the opiate for the masses. So he had all of that, in that, uh, for, in that right through that part of the century. Then, of course, in the 30s in Germany, you had Hitler becoming the Chancellor. And with him, this whole view of Nazism and Arianism, which had a very strong link into the church. And they called it it's culture Protestantism. This idea that the church would kind of uphold this idea that my nation is the kind of preferred nation. And there was all of that. And it was people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other Christian leaders that stood against that ideology. And then, of course, the Second World War and the devastation of that. 
And then you come into the 60s. How many remember the 60s? See, nobody admitted to that at the 9 o'clock. It was shameful, to be honest. The 60s, historians say, is the era that marks the decline of the church in the Western world. With the whole freedom and sexuality explosion that was in the 60s. Then the 70s, the era of anarchy and rebellion. The 80s and Maggie Thatcher, capitalism and hedonism. And then we come into the 90s and the 20s, the 2000s. And you get post-modernity and secularism. And before you think, oh, that's a really depressing story. In that century... Whereas the, the church in the Western world, in the first world as we call it, often declined, other parts of the world saw an amazing explosion in the church. So if you go out to South Korea, the start of the 20th century, there's hardly any Christians. By the end, 33%, or by the 80s, 33%, one in three would profess to be a Christian. In Africa, 1900, there were estimated to be 10 million believers. By 2000, estimated to be 400 million believers. Some of the largest churches in the world are in Africa. And then there's Latin America. And then in more recent times, there's China. There's incredible... I want to tell you, the church is alive and well. It really is. And before you get too despondent about the church in the UK and in Europe, the church in the UK, in terms of church attendance, is on a decline. In, in, although it seems to have stabilised over the last few years. But even in, in the worst kind of figures, the worst figures are probably 1 in 13 people who'd regularly attend church and would say that they are a churchgoer and they're committed to Christ and to the body of Christ. And that's nowhere near as high as it has been. But I want to tell you, one in 13 can make a difference for God. Isn't that right? And that's partially why we have kind of adopted this national strategy called Back to Church Sunday. And um, September the 26th, we'll be running a Back to Church Sunday. And I'm going to be honest with you as a leader, okay? When we did this a couple of years ago, we did it, and I didn't really understand why we were doing it, to- if I'm totally honest with you. I didn't quite get it. I kind of want people to come back to church, but I didn't get why doing a Back to Church Sunday would be a part of that. But then recently, I met the guy who's the national kind of director for this, and really, his passion and his clarity has really helped me to see what this is about. And I want to talk to you for a few minutes about it. You see, because you think, well, what's the point of just inviting someone back to church? Yet, firstly, we're not going to do things all differently, okay? It'll be a normal church Sunday, what we do. Because if we do things all differently, then that's kind of false, isn't it? So we're not going to do that. We're just going to be who we are, hopefully try and engage and connect with visitors and with new people. And if you're a visitor, we hope that we connect with you today. It's great that you're here. But why back to church? The word back is really important because God wants people back to a relationship with Him, isn't it? The Bible says that God created us in His own image, for relationship with him, but we have turned our backs on him and he wants us desperately to come back to him. And why back to church? Because church is that bridge that connects people to God. We are the body of Christ. How many of you are a Christian because of somebody else who was a Christian who's influenced your life? How many of you? Most of you. Because most of us find God through somebody else and that somebody else is the, is the church, isn't it? It's the body of Christ. And why a Sunday? Because I think that actually we've got in the UK and in Europe in, under a curse where we think that the church in the UK and in the West and in Europe will not grow. We see the church growing in Africa and Latin America and China and we think that the church won't grow here. That's a curse and we need to break it. So not just once a year, but once a term, three times a year, we will be doing Back to Church Sunday where we'll encourage you to invite someone to come back. Because we want to break the curse over us. And we hope that it then isn't just three Sundays a year, but it becomes part of our lifestyle. Where we're inviting people to come to church in order that they can connect to church, but ultimately really connect to God. And connect to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. 
So who do you invite? Invite those people who used to come to this church and now don't go to any church. How many of you know anyone like that? Used to come to this church and now doesn't go to any church. Invite them. Invite people who used to go to church, uh, in perhaps another church, but don't go to church at all. Invite people who've never been to church, who could have an experience of knowing God. How do you do it? Really, really complicated. You pray about who to invite. You ask them to come. You bring them. Don't just say, I'll meet you there, because that's really scary for people who haven't been to a church like this before. Try and come with them, all right? Try and drive with them if you can. Bring them in. Introduce them to your friends, as long as they're not really too scary, which I'm sure they won't be. And then afterwards, ask them to come again. Now, how complicated is that? It's not that complicated. And I want to encourage you to do that. And you can take the card that you've got, and there's some loads at the back, and you can pick loads up and invite loads of people. And and immediately you say, oh yeah, but they'll have this excuse, they'll have this reason, they'll have this reason. What I want you to do is take a look at the screen. I found a clip from a church in America that has done this so well, and I think it does translate across the water. Rather than us trying to do it ourselves, I just want to show you this. This highlights some of the obstacles that we all have and that people have to church and gives you a different spin on it. So take a look at the screen. Here's a few reasons why people don't go to church. I can't come to church until I get my life together. Church is how I got my life together. Church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And there's always room for one more. All they care about is your money. They care about me, not about my money. some kind of dress code yes the code is wear some clothes church it just makes me nervous I was nervous at first and then I felt right at home I'm not sure I believe everything that you believe but you can still belong church is for wimpy girly men You want to say that again? If you knew me and what I've done, you wouldn't want me. If you knew me and what I've done, you wouldn't be worried. You can come to my church even if you were brought up Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Jewish, Mormon, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Church of Christ, Southern Baptist, a little bit of everything and a whole lot of nothing. See, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. So please, come to my church. Where nobody's perfect. Where beginners are welcome. Where socks are optional, but grace is required. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And where it's okay to not be okay. Really. Why don't we pray? Let's just pray for a moment. Once upon a time, somebody brought you to church. I want you just to think about that for a moment. Somebody brought you to a church or an event or something. And through that, you met God. You met Christ. And the sad truth is that for many of us, We've forgotten about that and we've forgotten about all the people out there that we're connected to who don't yet know Christ or who once did and now are not walking with him. And and I want to ask you just as we pray to think about someone who you can invite 
in a couple of weeks' time. Father, would you speak to us by your Spirit? God, I pray that you'll give us the courage to invite and to ask. And whether they've never been to church, or whether they've been to church and they were hurt, and many of them in this country are like that, or they used to go to church, but then they got distracted, then life got too busy and other things became important. God, I pray that you give us the courage to invite somebody. Because ultimately it isn't about church as in a building, it's about a community of people with Christ himself in the midst of that. And Lord, you want us back in relationship with you. We are imperfect. We are hypocritical in many ways. But God, we know that. And we're on a journey with you. And so God, would you speak to us? And I pray that all across this nation on September the 26th, there will be people flocking, not just back to church, but flocking back to within earshot of your message and your truth and your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most important person to ask, what is the church you see? It's not kids, it's not adults, it's not ministers and vicars, it's not the media, it's not the government, it's not the man on the street or the woman in the pew. The most important person to ask, what is the church you see, is God. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to look at Matthew chapter 16. This is quite a well-known passage of scripture for those of you that, you know, perhaps know the Bible or, or, or have read it before, or perhaps went to Sunday school. You may, you may know this, you may not, so I'll explain it to you. But it's very, very important because of two reasons, which I'll talk to you about in a moment. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, and it says this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's a term he used about himself. So in other words, he's saying, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, changes his name here, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is important for two reasons. It contains life's most important question. Most important question of life is this, this one, when Jesus said, who do you think I am? See, that's really, really important. It's actually life-defining. And if today you think, oh, Jesus, yeah, he, he was like a good man, wasn't he? And, you know, he was like Gandhi, but from Israel. And he was a really good teacher. That's all good, but that's not enough. You see, Peter didn't say that. Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are God, come to earth. In the form of a man. And it's only through a relationship with you that we can get to know God and get to know who we really are in connection to God. And it's the most important question of life. And if you've not answered that question, I really want to encourage you to stick with us and to come with us on a journey these next few weeks and ask yourself, at the end of this time, perhaps you can answer that question, I know who you are. But it's also an important question because it's, it contains the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament. Now, in the Bible, there's something called the law of first mention, which basically says that any time in the Bible, or in a book, or in a, a testament, that the word comes up for a first time. It's really important, because often at that time, you get the fullest understanding of the word. And this is the first time the word church is used in the New Testament. Now, in Aramaic, which is, which is the language it was written in at the time, it means called out assembly. 
It's a word that's used 114 times in the New Testament. 90 of those references refer to the church as the local church, like this church. But in this occasion, Jesus doesn't use that reference. He uses the word church for the universal church, the church of Christ across the world. Okay, that's what he's talking about. And the word he uses, ecclesia, which means called out assembly, was not a new word. People who heard it understood it because it referred to Greeks who assembled together to lead or govern a city. It also referred in in the Hebrew version of the word to Jews who gathered for religious activity. But when Jesus uses the word, he's using a whole different meaning of it. He's saying, you know about assemblies in Greek culture and Hebrew culture, but the church, the called out assembly, is going to be something like you've never seen before. It's going to unite Jew and Gentile, non-Jews, black and white. There will be no barriers, no distinctions. This will be a new temple, a new body. And Jesus says, and I myself, I'm going to be the founder, the builder, and the sustainer of this new community. Isn't that exciting? And that's what's declared here in this passage of Scripture. It's really, really important that we understand this passage of Scripture. And I want to put a quote up on on the screens, which is one of my favorite quotes about the church by a guy called Dallas Willard. And he says this, God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with God himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. Isn't that amazing? That his, that his view is that he wants to create a community of people, an inclusive community where he himself is in the center, where he sustains it and where he is the most glorious inhabitant. That's his view of church. That's his view of community. Now we need to understand the drama of the day that's unfolding here for the disciples as they go with Jesus. They go to Caesarea Philippi. That's 26 miles from Galilee. So Jesus is deliberately taking these group of Jewish boys, many of them are teenagers and young men. He's taking them to a place 26 miles away from Galilee. And Caesarea Philippi was the center of the worship of the goat god called Pan. All right? The goat god. It's where we get the word pandemonium from. And uh, 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 Jesus is taking them deliberately there. And there's a big temple there to this goat god, Pan. And at the side of the temple, there's a courtyard where people would perform sex acts with goats during the worship. And right there, there's a cliff and there's a crack in the cliff. And these people that worship the goat god, Pan, believed that spirits from the underworld would come up onto the earth through that uh, crack in the cliff and spirits would go down. And they called it the Gates of Hades. Now, when you understand that little bit of history and archaeology, you'll understand how significant this is, that Jesus chooses to take these group of disciples 26 miles away, good Jewish boys, to this place. They would never be seen dead in that place. In fact, I reckon some of them, the younger ones, said, if my mom and dad knew that I was here, I'd be so grounded. Do you know what I mean? Like forever. And right there in that middle of this kind of horrific, idolatry, superstitious stuff, Jesus said, I'm on this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. It's amazing, isn't it? And that's what he declares. Now let's unpack some words a little bit. Verse 18, on this rock, I will build my church. There's been a lot of controversy about what he means when he says, on this rock. And of course, a certain part of the church, more historic church, felt that it's Peter. Okay, that that's the rock that you're going to build the church on. That's where the Catholic church gets Peter and the idea of the Pope. And then when, when he says, and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Um, on holiday recently in the summer, we went to Rome again, took Joss to Rome for the first time. And outside St. Peter's Basilica, there's a big statue of Peter with the keys to the kingdom. 
Can I say, I don't believe that that's what Jesus was saying here at all, okay? When he says, on this rock I will build my church, the word Peter, Petros, means stone in Aramaic. But the word that Jesus uses for rock here is the word Petra, which is a giant rock. So he says, Peter, you're a stone, but, and you're going to be building this church, but you're on something much bigger than you. You see, the big rock that I'm going to build church is me. Jesus says, I am the cornerstone. I am the rock. And when he said, I give you the keys to the kingdom, which he did, and Peter used those keys in Acts chapter 2, he preached and 3,000 people became followers. He used them many times to open the gate. But how many of you know, every one of us can carry the keys. Isn't that right? We're all key carriers. We all get to open the gate for other people to experience the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying, listen, Peter, you're really important in the foundation of the church, but you must not think that it's all about you. Because actually, there's only one really important person in the foundation of the church, and that's me. That's what Jesus said. And I want to say to you today that any discussion on the church that doesn't start with Jesus misses the mark. It misses the mark. And what I want to do with you this morning is just to open up this one little phrase that Jesus said, I will build my church. And I love that because he says, I'm going to build it. I will do it. And I know that as a Christian leader, I get it caught many times in this thing of how are we going to build the church and how am I going to work harder and what new strategy can we do and all that's important. And sometimes I forget that it's not my church, it's his. And he said, I will build my church. He builds it. He owns it. It's his church. And he grows it because he says, I will build my church. Anyone remember John Wimber? Anyone remember that name? Some of you will know that name. He was a fellow that came along a lot in the 70s and 80s and 90s, Christian leader. And one of the famous quotes of John Wimber is where he, and very simple, he just said, God is saying, give me back my church. And there's just this sense in which you know, we at the church generally have forgotten that it's God's church, that Jesus is the head of the church. It's not ours. It's not an institution. It's not a denomination. It belongs to Christ. And Christ is the head of the church. And the church God sees is the church where the presence of Jesus among his people draws and calls them to become a spiritual family to pursue the mission of Christ on the earth. They may meet in a building, and the building may be a great big one. It may be one that they're building, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is, is Christ in the midst and is that group of people becoming a spiritual family who are pursuing the mission of Christ on the earth. If that's the case, then that's the church that God sees. Amen? That's the church that God sees. I want to just draw a couple of things for you to help us. Uh, in this church, we, we use um, kind of some symbols and pictures and different things. And we talk a little bit about DNA. We talk about DNA being um, discipleship and nurture and addition. I want to just flex that out a little bit for you. You can think of D, uh, discipleship, as being actually about divine truth. That's what we're looking for, divine truth, in order to get to know God. And the great commandment that God said to, uh, that Jesus said to his disciples is this, the most important thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Divine truth, discipleship, love God. But then you can go on from that and talk about nurturing relationships. Because then he said, that's the first great commandment, but also you must love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not just about you and God, it's about you and other people. Okay, nurturing relationships. And then, of course, that's the great commandment. And the great commission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we can talk about that in terms of apostolic 
which means to be sent out, mission. Now, the important thing with DNA is not to subtract anything, not to supplement, or not to separate. And so we as a church want to say to you, we're not, you know, we, we want to we love God with all of our heart. But that doesn't mean that we don't want to love each other. It doesn't mean that we don't want to love the world around us. We cannot separate these three things out. And we want to say that because that's really important because there are some people that would want us to do that. They want to say it's all about this or it's all about this. And actually, you can't do that. You cannot separate it out. It's all part of the DNA. Now, let me take the analogy on a little bit further into style and into method. In the Old Testament, the uh, tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, went through the wilderness. And at certain times, they camped. And the Bible says that they camped, and they camped in their tribes. And you, you know the, you know the, the term tribal. You know, it's, oh, they're very tribal. It means that we've got set ideas and set views. The tribes of Israel were very tribal. Okay? They were very distinct. They were very different. They were very separate. And the plan of God was to bring them together. And they camped around the tabernacle. Okay, so if we put the tabernacle. And they camped all around it. Now, I think in, in modern church life, and I've used this illustration before, we're like that as well. And we all have our little tribal encampments, okay? So there's the, what I call the tribe of the word, all right? And our whole purpose is that we want the word, we want the Bible, we want to go deeper, we want to go further, okay? And that's the important thing. And what we try and do is we try and see if we could get that central. Then there's a whole other tribe of people that believe that church isn't about that. In fact, sometimes that's just really boring. Do we need to listen to people go on about the Greek and the Hebrew and theology and all this? All we need is wonders. If we could just see more people healed and more ministry and that, and we try and get that into the center. There's a whole other group of people that say, we don't need to do that. What we need to do is to sing songs forever and ever and ever and no amen. All right, we're just going to keep singing. It's just worship. If we could just worship, that would be it. And we try and get that philosophy, that idea, into the center. Then there's a whole load of other people that actually, they're not about any of that. They just want to fellowship. They want to be with people. They don't want to say, this is doing. They want to be. So it, it, we don't need any of that. We don't really need songs. We don't really need the Bible. We don't need the, If we could just be together with coffee, nice coffee, because Christians could drink nice coffee. Well, you're not a Christian, isn't it? That's what it's like now. So could it be Starbucks or Costa? And if we could just gather around a cup of, you know, a latte or two, then we'd be the church. And that's all we see. And we want to get that in the center. And then there's the group that are now the social action tribe. And that's coming to the fore a lot in recent times. And we say, why on earth are we bothering with all this stuff? When there's all these people out here and we could get out there and we need to feed the poor. We need to lift up the marginalized. We need to reach the destitute. And we try and get that into the center. Then there's others that say, oh, no, actually, we need to evangelize. You know, what about all these lost people? We don't want to do all this social action stuff and worship and sing songs. People are going to hell. <laughs> that woke you up, didn't it? We need to get out there. We need to preach the gospel to them. And we try and get that into the middle. Have I got any more? And then in, in modern times, there's that, like, look, this is so outdated. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's 2010 now. So we need to be all contemporary. Okay, so we need to talk about, we need to Twitter and we need to Facebook and we need to do little coaching groups and we need to do all this and we need to talk about this issue and that issue and I haven't got time for doing all that and church has to fit to me and my life and my schedule and there's that tribe as well. And what each of these tribes does is it tries to get their self into the middle. How many of you know that that's all wrong, isn't it? Because none of those should be centre, should they? 
Because the tabernacle, the Bible says, is a foreshadow of something to come. And it's not a building, but it's a person. And it's Jesus. And I want to suggest that when Jesus is at the center for all of us, all these things are valid. And wouldn't it be awesome if rather than us trying to push all those things in there, actually all these things started to flow out? Wouldn't that be phenomenal? So we were understanding what the Bible said and we were seeing people healed and set free and we were worshipping and connecting to God and we were having fellowship with each other and we were engaging with real issues in a real relevant way and we were seeing lost people become saved and we were seeing uh, uh, the, the poor fed and unjust systems tackled. And, and ch- Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it? That only comes when Jesus is at the centre. And as we start this series looking at the church I see, I want to pull out one line from that reading and it's this. The church I see is passionately in love with Jesus Christ. And if it's not, it's not the church that God sees. It's not. And we could be fantastic at some of this stuff, but if we're not passionately in love with Jesus Christ, we're not the church. We're really not the church. And one of the challenges for us is we'll talk about social action in a couple of weeks' time. We'll talk about interacting with our community. One of the massive challenges for the church is how do we stay passionately with Jesus and engage in that in a relevant way. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks' time. But everything flows from this phrase. And I want to suggest a few things. If you love Christ, you know you will love the church with all of its imperfections and warts. Tony Campolo said, you know, the, the church is like a whore. And yet she's my mother. Because the church is unfaithful and often turns away from God and is awful at times. And yet I'm where I am spiritually because of the church. And we have to understand we're where we are because of the church. You would not be a Christian without the church. I'm not talking about this building, even this group, but the church generally. Isn't that right? Because the church, right from Peter and the disciples, has gone on all through the ages. And we are where we are spiritually because of the church. But, you know, if you love Christ, you will love the church. Because Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Not that you know the word. Not that you do miracles. Not that you love coffee with each other. Not that you feed the poor. But that you love one another. That's how, ultimately, people are going to know that you're my disciples. You see, you cannot say to God, to Jesus, you know, I really love you, Jesus, but I can't stand your wife. Because the church is the bride of Christ. Now, you can love the church and not love Christ. Many people get caught up with the church and fail to get caught up with Christ. But I don't believe that you can really love Jesus genuinely and not also have a love for the church. If you love Christ, you will obey him. Not because you have to, but because you want to. If you love Christ, you will love the things and the people that Christ loves. Bob Pierce, founder of World Vision, said, Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. I want to finish by just a few thoughts. I don't know about you, but I know what can happen to me. I can get caught up so much in all this stuff that I really miss the main man. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And and I can miss that. I can miss what the church is really all about. And I just started when I was preparing the end of this this message, just wrote out a few phrases that came to me. And I'm just going to read them out. We can love structures more than we love the sustainer of the church. We can love the security the church gives us more than the saviour. We can love the life, church life, more than we love the life giver. We can love the gifts more than we love the giver. We can love the routine more than we love the relationship. We can love being around Jesus without actually being changed by Jesus. But the church I see, the church God sees, is passionately 
in love with Jesus Christ. The question is, are we? Are you? Am I passionately in love with Jesus Christ? You know when people get fed up with church and disaffected with church and all that, and I understand all of that, but I know that ultimately the real reason that is, is connected to our relationship with God. Somewhere along the track, it's connected to our relationship with God. And while we're passionately in love with Jesus Christ. Because if we were, we'd be able to deal with some of those hurts we pick up. We'd be able to look at some of the imperfections and see it for what it is. And we'd be able to still love the church, even though at times it drives us potty. We can say, God, this is your bride. This is your body. This is your temple. This is your building. This is the church of Christ. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. You know, in Acts chapter 2, when the church was really formed on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 3, you read that a couple of the disciples went to the gate beautiful and there was the, the, the lame man there and he said, can you give me silver and gold? And they said, don't have that, but what I have I give you. And in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. In the next chapter, they're pulled before the Sanhedrin, the local rulers, and they said, you're doing all these amazing things, you know, how can you do it? And they quizzed them. And then one of them says this, it says, the Bible says that in, in Acts 4 verse 13, they realized that they'd been with Jesus. And that word realized means they recognized the strong distinguishing marks. Isn't that phenomenal? They recognized strong distinguishing marks that these fellows had been with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want this church to be known, not for its building, okay, not for its programs, not for its activities. I want it to be known for a group of people with strong distinguishing marks that we've been with Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? And it starts with you and me as an individual saying, God, it's all about you. Jesus, it's all about you in the centre. Everything else has to flow from then. Why don't we pray? Why don't we pray? Let's just pause for a moment. And I realise that some of you are not part of this church in that sense, but you're part of the church. You're part of the church that Jesus was speaking about. Some of you are visitors. You're perhaps you're not part of any church, and that's fine. I hope you understand a little bit of what we're about, really. But if you are, if you do say this morning that you are a follower of Christ, and you are then part of the church, then I want to ask you a question. Are you passionately in love with Jesus? And if you are, and if you are, then you will give yourself to the church and you'll give yourself to the mission of the church and you'll give yourself to 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 wanna to wanna live like that to, to to say you know I'm one of those stones being built together upon the rock that is Christ being built into that community of faith that you dreamt about God that you purposed from the beginning of time that you saw before the foundation of the world and that you're working in by your spirit to bring us to completion and perfection And I want you to just say to God this morning, God, I love you. Jesus, I love you. And if I'm not passionately in love with you, I want to be. Some of you right now, you can recognize that you used to be, but you're not. You're not right now. Perhaps Jesus has drifted out of the center and your life has drifted into the center or your issue has drifted into the center or your work has drifted into the center or can I say even your family has drifted into the center because believe it or not, as a Christian, family is not first. God's first, God's center, and everything flows out of that. And so I want to ask you this morning to say, Lord Jesus, would you be the center again in my life?
And Lord, would you be the center in this church? And Lord Jesus, I pray that over these next few weeks, months and years, we would see incredible things happen because you are in the center and because we have those strong, distinguishing marks that we've been with Jesus. So Lord, I pray that the passion of Christ would fill our lives, fill our hearts and fill this church. I pray our life groups would be places where Jesus is the center. It's not just about us. It's not just about our barbecues and our events and our chats and our friendship. Important though that is. But Jesus is the center. And out of that, everything will flow. God, we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.